So as I mentioned yesterday, and I think Martin did also, this morning I want to look at the, um, at the, at the source of this uh, question, what is this? Of course, as has already been said, the source of this question uh, lies within ourselves. Uh, it's a question that gives voice, or it puts into words, the question of our own existence. And by that I don't just mean my uh, personal existence uh, in this body sitting on this chair, but also the fact that this is only possible because of all of the conditions that have given rise over the last, uh, I think, about 15 billion years to, um, to where, where we are now, to put it in somewhat more uh, manageable terms. Um, everything that has happened to us since we have been born, and we cannot separate uh, our self me uh, from all of the, uh, the the physical, the biological, the cultural, the linguistic uh, conditions that have formed us. So when we ask ourselves, "What is this?" we must be careful not to narrow the sense of this just to what is. Uh, palpable within the confines of our skin and to recollect that this refers to the totality of what is present to us in this moment. One might even say prior to the distinction between uh, self and other, between me and you, between me and the world before the thought um, arises uh, that I am here and you are there. Something rather more primordial, perhaps the sort of experience that a, an unformed child might have. So the, the context for this in the Chan tradition goes back to an encounter between two uh, Chan uh, monks, one who is very well known called Huineng. He's the sixth uh, patriarch uh, in China, that is after Bodhidharma. He lived um, in the 8th century um, of the common era. And he lived in a monastery called Nanhua Su, uh, which is about a day's journey from Guangzhou, what used to be called Canton, right down in the south of China, not too far from Hong Kong. A monastery which, by the way, still exists and um, has survived the ravages of the Cultural Revolution somehow and preserved within it is the enlacquered body of Hui Neng himself. <laughs> Uh, there's a thing called the Hall of the Patriarchs, which is behind the main temple, and there you will find seated uh, Hui Neng 
himself. Um, when he died, his body was uh, encased in lacquer, and there he sits. Um, he never moves. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> um, yes, it's quite. Uh, we visited this after we left Korea uh, in the mid 80s, and it's very moving. Uh, there is this man, still there today, albeit long dead. In any case, the other monk was called Huai Zhang. And Huai Zhang, again, we know not a great deal about. But the story starts with uh, Huai Zhang traveling from Mount Song, which is quite far north in China. It's north of the Yangtze, uh, near the city of Luoyang. And Huai Zhang had heard of this uh, meditation teacher, uh, this new movement that was gaining ground in southern China, and he decided that he would go check this out. So he walked, um, and this is you know, several hundred miles, um, down from Mount Song to Nanhua Su, and then when he arrived at the monastery, he was ushered in to see the patriarch, Hui Neng, and Hui Neng uh, said to him, well, where have you come from? And Huai Zhang says, I've come from Mount Song. And then Huai Neng said, but what is this thing? And how did it get here? At which, so the text says, Huai Zhang was speechless. He then, it says, spent eight years in the monastery. And at the end of the eight years, again doesn't say what he did, he goes and sees Hui Nang again, and Hui Nang says, okay, what is it? And Hui Zhang says, to say it is like something misses the point. Okay, end of story. <laughs> um, so the, the question, what is this, or what is this thing and how did it get here, or simply, what is it, what is it? Any of these could serve as as uh, translations, has its source in this uh, rather pithy encounter. And um, let's try to pick that apart. Effectively, the story hinges on the initial exchange between the two men, <laughs> where the conversation shifts from... Um, effectively a polite exchange of social niceties. Oh, hello, where have you come from? Oh, I've come from Mount Song. To a point where one assumes now that the young monk is somehow off his guard, that Hui Neng then turns the tables, as it were, and shifts into another kind of discourse altogether, in which he then poses this rather more threatening question. Yeah, but what is this thing? How did it get here? Now clearly at this point, Hui Nang is no longer playing the game of social niceties. Um, he's, uh, he's changed the rules of the game. He's now confronting this presumably young man with the question of his own existence. You know, who are you, really? 
okay, I know you're called X and you live in this town and you've done these things and you have this nicely organized story about you and your life, your little personal narrative that you keep running as a monologue in your head. Okay, that's all very interesting, but who are you really? What's actually going on with you? That's the question, effectively. And that's no different from the question that the young bodhisattva, the, the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, um, would have experienced on seeing an old person, a sick person, a corpse, where suddenly these things are not just um, features of life, everyday, relatively unremarkable, albeit joyous or tragic events, but these are what in Indian Buddhism they call heavenly messengers. Uh, these are encounters that can turn your life around to, in other words, to become conscious of the fact that you have been born and you will die. Uh, what in Chinese they sometimes call simply the great matter of birth and death. So Huineng's um, encounter uh, turns the discourse from one of um, everyday matter-of-fact stuff in which we just run on automatic pilot and things muddle along more or less okay to something rather more um, fundamental. And Hui Zhang's remaining speechless is, I think, um, a good indicator that this uh, question um, threw him back into the very primary confusion or puzzlement or perplexity or doubt as to what in fact he was, what in fact was going on. And then he spent eight years in the monastery. And this, again, is, again, eight years is nothing sacrosanct or special. It's simply that one then, that one then turns one's attention <coughs> once such a question has been evoked um, to, uh, to, to somehow coming to terms with that question. Um, I'm, I'm very uh, cautious about um, presenting these uh, Chan or Son teachings as a series of riddles and that the teacher somehow has the job of helping you crack these riddles and so having solved one, you go on and are then given another one. And in some forms of Zen, uh, this is how the training proceeds. You go through a, a, what's called koan study. And you take one and you take two and you take three and you keep working through them. I've never done that, so I can't honestly um, uh, you know, give any real first-hand evaluation of it. But in the um, Chinese and the Korean traditions where they don't do that, they recognize that if you can come to terms with one of these questions, then you have come to terms with all of them. And the reason for that is because they're not actually discrete riddles that can be solved in sequence and you can deepen your understanding. But ultimately, all of these 
kungans, these uh, dialogues, these encounters, um, are actually addressing the same uh, fundamental question, namely the koan, the kungan, the case of your own life. And the words, the story, uh, is basically just a device to connect you to the great, the great question of birth and death. And I don't think that there is an answer to the great question of birth and death as there might be an answer to a riddle. It's not a riddle. Um, it's, I would argue, um, a mystery. And something that on getting closer to or penetrating into or embodying more consciously um, does not make that mystery any less mysterious. It probably makes it more mysterious. It makes it more strange, makes it more um, uncanny in a way. And so the practice um, is very much one of opening oneself to this puzzle, to this mystery, and allowing oneself to be somehow immersed in it, allowing oneself somehow to allow that sense of perplexity or wonder or confusion to begin to slowly permeate into your consciousness as a whole, not just when you're formally sitting in meditation in this room, but as you're going about your life, that this puzzlement or perplexity or wonderment uh, is something that uh, slowly seeps into your sense of being here in this world at all, no matter what you may be doing, whether you're formally practicing zazen on a cushion or whether you are um, peeling potatoes in the kitchen or whether you are um, strolling around in the garden or whether you're getting on the train in Newton Abbott, that this sense um, of this going on at all and how utterly strange this is at some level um, begins to more and more take hold of you and to constitute your sense of being in the world. So that this quality of questioning um, begins to infuse your awareness in a way that life is less predictable, less routine, maybe slightly less dull and banal and everyday, and begins to become alive um, in a somewhat startling and um, engaging way that is... <coughs> is, I do feel, strongly linked to um, a certain sense of creativity, of imagination, of spontaneity, of aliveness, of um, an ability to uh, appreciate and, and celebrate the fact of being alive in any moment. So it's a life quality that we're seeking here to cultivate.
And what we're doing on a retreat is really just giving a sustained period of time uh, to focus on cultivating this uh, felt sense of puzzlement. And that's the key term. I've used a rather uh, contemporary phrase, felt sense. In uh, traditional Zen writings, they talk of a mass of doubt, or sometimes a block of doubt. Um, in other words, there's a recognition that this perplexity, this uishin, this doubt, is something that begins to um, achieve a kind of physical quality, a felt sense. That this doubting, this questioning is not just an intellectual exercise, but something that begins to, um, uh, as, as I said yesterday, uh, penetrate into the marrow of your bones and the pores of your skin. To give a, a rather more um, everyday example of that, um, this, is some, this is a bit like losing your car keys. Um, you always put your car keys, as I do, well, I always put my car keys in, my, in the right-hand pocket of my jacket. But sometimes when I go back to my car, after having done the shopping or whatever, and I put my hand in the right-hand side jacket of my pocket, they're not there. And so I think, that's odd. Put my hand in my left hand side pocket, not there either. <laughs> and so, with the expectation that 200 grams of metal will suddenly manifest, I put them back in the pocket I've already looked, and they're still not there. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, having been through all sorts of unlikely uh, places on my person, um, I have to come to the conclusion that I've I don't know where they are. <laughs> and that uh, sense of utter bafflement has two, um, has two notable consequences. One is it leaves the mind in a kind of blank. You've exhausted all possibilities. The mind comes to a stop. Hui Jiang was speechless, as the text says. You're speechless. Uh, and that might then provoke a very deep, visceral, somatic question that might assume the form of, where are the keys? <laughs> and this is a questioning that's certainly not um, a polite uh, intellectual inquiry, a, dis a, di a disinterested reflection. This is coming from your heart and soul from the very flesh of your experience. And it leaves you there standing bereft in this car park um, in a state of a profound perplexity, astonishment, um, bewilderment. It's a bit like that. I mean, that's somewhat overstating it because you're not going to sustain that sense for any great period of time. But it gives an example of how such questioning, any questioning, uh, can, as it were, engage the whole of us. And that's why when we do this practice, we do so in the context of meditation. And by meditation here, I mean 
formal sitting and walking. This is not just a, an accident. We do it this way. We bring this quality of attention into our bodies. In some uh, forms of uh, Zen particularly, we find Dogen is a good example of this. Uh, that for Dogen, the, the posture itself is already somehow the solution. If you sit right, then that is what it means to be awake. Now, again, I don't want to get drawn into interpreting that statement, but at the root of it, I think, lies the recognition that this kind of inquiry um, uh, is an embodied inquiry. And the sitting and the walking, um, the bowing, um, is, are repeated reminders to come back to the body, to get back into the body, so when we ask this question, what is this? We, of course, will begin, especially if we've never done this kind of thing before, necessarily, since it's in words, since it's in language, it will be repeated in our minds. And it might initially seem to have relatively little purchase <coughs> on how we feel in our bodies. In fact, it might seem like a rather odd little mental exercise to be pursuing. It may not really grab us deeply at all. But over time, particularly as the meditation brings us into a quieter, calmer, maybe more lucid, clear frame of attention, then as we pose this question, what is this? it slowly begins to resonate and reverberate through the whole of us. And what's far more important than the words of the question is the, uh, the psychosomatic resonance that that question evokes. In other words, what it feels like, the felt sense of questioning that we feel um, in our bones almost, in our bodies, in our belly. Sometimes they suggest that you ask the question with your belly, and by that they refer to something called the dandian in Chinese Taoist uh, uh, kind of anatomy, a point three finger widths below your navel. I don't think we have to get that precise. But the point is that we try to pose this question with our guts, uh, with our stomach, rather than with our heads. And so I feel that, again, the sitting, the walking, the bowing, brings our attention slowly further down into the, the lower regions of our body. Um, and in this way, it becomes less of an inquiry, uh, you know, sort of investigation and analysis, um, and more and more a kind of a, uh, a felt sensibility. I think this happens probably in most forms of meditation at some level, 
Um, if you do, for example, body sweeping in Vipassana, as the Goenka tradition teaches, it's, that's having a very, very similar effect. Um, any prolonged exercise of, of sitting, walking, even doing things like Tai Chi or yoga, all of these, I think, are, um, uh, are, are exercises of embodiment. And if you are a yoga practitioner or you do the body sweeping, these practices are completely uh, compatible with what we're doing here. For some of you, though, though that form of practice might work better at getting you into your body. And so I'd encourage you to do that in, in conjunction with this, if you wish. But that's the main point, is to get into a, a much more grounded uh, sense of awareness, but to bring to that, and this is what I think the, the SON approach provides, is a way to um, not just be embodied, but for that embodied awareness to be deeply puzzled and curious, to be surprised that you're embodied, to be astonished that you are an embodied creature in an embodied physical world of sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches, sensations, and so on. And again, I don't think it's a Western problem that we live in our heads. It seems to be a feature of, of being human. I mean, otherwise, back in the, you know, the 8th century, they wouldn't have taught these things if, uh, if it weren't problematic, uh, if there wasn't the problem that people were becoming disembodied. So I think we're not just engaging in a practice that might serve as a valuable corrective to our very heady kind of modern culture, but actually we're coming to terms with a human tendency to be disembodied that probably existed at all periods in history. You know, when the Buddha says, go to a forest, sit at the root of a tree, pay attention to your breathing, presumably that's a challenge because people didn't do that. They didn't feel that way about themselves. So just to emphasize that point, the, 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 once you begin to sense this questioning or perplexity in a more somatic way, you don't need to keep repeating this question. Um, you pay attention instead to your awareness, your consciousness of, um, of being here in a puzzled way, in a curious way, in a perplexed way. And this is something that contributes um, to your awareness as a human being um, in this world. It doesn't have to be labeled as being Zen or Buddhist or anything like that. It's awakening or it's seeking to awaken uh, another modality of being in the world. And again, some of you might pick up I'm using sort of Heideggerian phenomenological language. But then Heidegger too is very much into questioning. That's Fragen. 
and for, for Heidegger too, Fragen um, was not just a question of something that went on in the head. Uh, he says at the end of his essay on technology that um, questioning is the piety of thinking, the Frömmigkeit des Denkens, the piety, the something almost religious in the best sense of the word about this questioning. There's a kind of humility, there's a kind of awe, a kind of wonder, almost a kind of reverence that is uh, present in this kind of opening, this kind of questioning. So for those of you who have not done this uh, sort of thing before, um, just a couple of caveats really. One is don't just repeat the question. I'm sure Martin probably said that yesterday. This is not a mantra. In fact, I think it's quite important to um, spend a as much time as you need to get into a settled, still, focused attention. And you might do that just by working with the breath, for example, or some other meditation you may be familiar with that helps you get grounded and still and focused. And once you feel grounded and still in such a way, then gently drop into this, the question, what is this? And pay more attention, in fact, to the silence that follows the posing of the question. To somehow listen, to open your inner ear to whatever may um, arise in response to that question. Without any kind of expectation or... Um, idea as to what that should be. So to be completely without any kind of plan or any kind of sense that oh, I'm practicing Zen, I'm going to have this Satori-like moment any minute now, put all of that out of your mind and just try to be as intimate and as present and as, uh, as deeply serious as you can without getting tense about the question of your own life, the mystery of your own existence. 